living waters. We want to talk about one of the living water scenes in the Bible, the River Jordan. If you would uh, open your Bibles, please, to uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, and we will see the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the Lord's life, in, in his uh, baptism, and in his, his temptation, and as well in the many miracles that he performs. Matthew chapter 3 to start. Verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his pathway straight. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had baptized, was baptized, Jesus came immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son to, with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, the beloved one, in whom I am well pleased. I mentioned earlier that this is one of the spots in Scripture where you have the Trinity active and appearing, as it were, all at once. The voice of the Father, the symbolism of the dove descending upon the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, as it says, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the inauguration of our Lord's public ministry when he will be going, first of all, into Galilee, and then into Judea, and then into the province across Jordan, Perea, with a message. And the message was, repent, John would say, Jesus as well, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's good that we understand what is going on with that offer. At the end of his life, Jesus will say, this kingdom is taken from you. There was a beginning to that offering and an end of that in our Lord's life. As we saw last evening in Zechariah, the king will come and they will finally respond to him. Their eyes will be opened again by the Holy Spirit and they will repent and look on him whom they have pierced and enter into that kingdom that was being offered. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's a voice from heaven. This is a thrilling concept. God does not speak. God the Father does not speak openly, vocally, often. There is the voice of God in the Old Testament. There is in the gospel accounts the voice of God on just a few occasions. It's a strange thing. And do you know what's amusing here almost? 
When he speaks, he quotes scripture. Would you expect that? I have a verse for you, Jesus. In fact, I have two verses for you. Does this sound familiar? He says here, this is my beloved son. I adjusted that a little bit. In another account, it goes this way. It changes perspective. Instead of addressing the crowds, this is my beloved son, as Matthew records, from another viewpoint, it is said this, thou art my son. Does that stimulate your thinking at all? Thou art my son. Anybody think of a psalm? Anybody got one? That's it. Psalm 2. Thou art my son. Psalm 2 is a great psalm. It's a psalm about the king entering into his kingdom. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Thou art my son. The father is quoting David, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that. Is that kind of amazing? The father, God, quoting Psalm 2 to bring encouragement to his son. What kind of encouragement was it? This is the encouragement. All you have to do is ask me. And I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth for your inheritance. I will make you that king over the nation of Israel. Israel will enter into, into its promises. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. All you have to do is ask me. And you will rule, it says later as you read, you will rule with a rod of iron. And it's a description of the millennium. And Jesus is starting that ministry in which he is offering to Israel a literal, political kingdom. Earthly kingdom. Within the confines of the land that was given to Abraham. That Abraham saw when God said, you walk all over this. This is your land. This land is your land. Okay? And it is. It's the only piece of land God has ever given to anybody as a nation. That's what's being offered. It gives the Lord Jesus this word of encouragement. I'll quote a verse that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write. The Father does. Is that amazing? That takes my breath away. That takes my breath away. Okay. It really does. The intricacy of Holy Scripture. Wouldn't you think the Father would come up with something original? Well, he didn't. He quoted it. It's God's Word, after all. And minister through the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit, who worked in men so that they could record without error the word of God for us. And God quotes his own word here. I like that concept. That's how big a promise it is. Ask me. All you have to do is ask me. That had to be encouraging to Jesus. But he said something else. 
You're my son, the beloved one. Do you know where that comes from? That's a little harder to see, but here it is. You can't miss it, really. I'm reading from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant who I uphold, my elect or my beloved one, in whom my soul delights. They're the very words. I have put my spirit upon him. That's what's happening. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. This is a great promise of God. You are my beloved one, my elect. I'm pleased with you. And I'm pouring out my spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon you. Now, Isaiah 42 starts a very important section of the book of Isaiah. It's called the servant passages. You know the one in Isaiah 42, some I would expect. We all know Isaiah 52 and 53. The gospel in the book of Isaiah. He was, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And through his stripes we are here. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The gospel in the Old Testament, in the evangelistic Isaiah, as he spells it out so clearly. My son, I'm totally pleased with you. That summarizes the first 30 years of the Lord's life as the Father evaluates it. I'm so pleased with you. Ask me and I'll give you the kingdom. But remember, you're my servant. The servant of Isaiah 42. The servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. The servant that I will be pleased to bruise. Dave McLeod has a whole section on that concept of God being pleased. It's not Old English for the word I choose to bruise. It's I am pleased to do this. Right, David? I'm happy to do this. It's the same thing we read of Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross in leading many sons to glory. It's a great book. Get to read it. He's going to be oppressed more than any man so that he would hardly be recognizable. And that's the physical outward suffering. He's going to be made sin for us. God the Father is going to lay on him all of the sins of all of the world. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He bore my sins personally in his body on the tree. 
Jesus, you're that servant. Ask me, I'll give you the kingdom. But before you can ask for that, remember, you are my servant. And the Holy Spirit who inspired that has descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Picture that. These words, words of God, words of the Holy Spirit, through David, through Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being there in the form of a dove, Christ being there, the voice from heaven, telling about the offer of that great kingdom. But that's so great suffering that he would accomplish before that. It is strange. At Transfiguration, where there is Moses and Elijah, and they are talking about the Lord's departure that they would accomplish, he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John think it's wonderful that they are there just before the Feast of Tabernacles, when the kingdom would come, in theory. And uh, Peter didn't know what to say. He was afraid. He didn't know what to say. But that never stopped Peter from talking. So he speaks. And he speaks as, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's build booths. Let's build booths that we can stay here forever. Those poor peons down there, we'll just be here with Moses and Elijah and you and the three big-time apostles, and here we are. And they disappear, Moses and Elijah, and they see Jesus only, and a voice comes from heaven, and he says the same thing. This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Hear him. Referring again to the Isaiah 42:52 passage. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Quoted for a second time by God the Father. God speaks only one more time that can be heard. It's on Tuesday of Passion Week. Where Jesus gets the news. The Greeks have come. They want to see. He says, my hour has come. Shall I pray, Father, deliver me from this hour, this hour of being the servant of Isaiah 52? No, Father, I pray, glorify your name. And the voice booms from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. That's a new statement. That's a Father saying what he will accomplish shortly as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who in Hebrews the Holy Spirit, Christ, who through his eternal spirit offers up himself to God, the entire Trinity operative in that area. That was Tuesday of Passion Week. On that same Tuesday, Jesus will say, the kingdom is taken from you. Inauguration, baptism, the withdrawal of the offer of the kingdom They could have entered into that numerous times. They did not. You remember Kadesh Barnea? Go in and take the land. And they didn't. Under Joshua, they didn't quite do it. And the author of Hebrews talks about that. There, there is that rest to come. 
and they didn't enter in at Kadesh Barnea. They did not enter in in Joshua. He could have added, if he so desired, they did not enter in when I offered the kingdom beginning at the baptism. There remains a rest for the people of God. Somebody's got to enter into it. It's yet future. But that kingdom offer has been withdrawn. Now, that's a big lesson. That's a hard concept for us all to get a hold of. That it was a literal, earthly, political kingdom that was being offered in the life of Christ. And by the end of it, the Jews say, we will not have this man to rule over us. By design of God, Pontius Pilate and and Herod and the nations and the Jews were gathered together to do whatever thy hand had before determined to be done because he had additional plans. And if the blindness in part that has come to Israel brings such glory to us as Gentiles that we are saved and we are one with Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ, a third race. If that brings such glory to God, what will it be like when the kingdom comes to God's chosen people? That's the millennium. It's going to be a glorious time for us all and for all eternity in the eternal city. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, operative in this plan. The Father, quoting Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. The kingdom being offered at the baptism, at the inauguration of the Lord. Tied into the inspired text in the Old Testament. And so is the next great event. Uh, Satan is observing what is going on. And there is going to immediately follow the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ to not obey. And do you know what happens? In Luke, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Can you imagine that? This seems to be kind of a variation in the role of subordination. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted of God. Mark makes it even stronger. Listen to this. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That doesn't mean in a golf cart. Okay. It means as with a whip. Into the wilderness. To be tempted of God. Tested. To demonstrate the moral qualifications of the coming king. And do you know what happens there? It's like a Bible quiz. There's nothing but exchange of verses of scripture. Between God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the devil. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's having his devotions. Now, He was not having his devotions. He did not take all those scrolls into the desert to be tempted, did he, Steve? How did he learn all this stuff? How did he know all these verses to quote from Deuteronomy and and Exodus? Parallel passages. How did he learn to know all that? Well, he's God after all. He's omniscient. No! He went to synagogue school. 
He learned. This is a great illustration of how we overcome temptation. What was Jesus thinking about in the wilderness when he was being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights? Interesting number. We won't go into that. 40 days and 40 nights. What was he thinking of? Well, he was thinking of the nation of Israel when they were tempted in the wilderness. The principle there is when we go to Holy Scripture for direction and instruction and encouragement, we find the place that matches our situation in life. It's not just, give me a verse, Lord, oh, here it is, whatever you do, do it quickly. Good, I'm going to hurry up now. No, it's in a contextual setting. And he is thinking of, of uh, how, how this all happened to the children of Israel, where they were fed for 40 years in wilderness wanderings. And Satan shows up and says, you see those stones? Don't they look like little loaves of bread? Well, they would. Same shape, same color. Give a command. You're God after all if you're the Son of God. And he's agreeing with that. That's not a question. You're God after all if you're God and you are. Command these stones to be made bread. And you'll have something to eat. You won't have to be so hungry over these 40 days because he came on the last day and it says Jesus was hungry. I suppose he would be. It's no big deal for you to turn the stone into bread. You can do that. Whenever I would come to this in life of Christ, I would, in days gone by, say to my students, my wife has the reverse capability. She turns bread into rock. And they go running off to my wife's office. And they said, did you know what your husband said about you? And she said, is he on the temptation again? <laughs> you know. It would have been nothing for Jesus to do this if of the stones God could make children of Israel. He could surely make a loaf of bread out of a stone. And Jesus quotes scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. Children of Israel didn't get this. They complained. I trust God. That's what he learned. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God through the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit. He goes the same place you and I go to find sustenance in difficult times to the Word of God. We better well know the context of our struggle so we can go to the right passages. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring to mind what we have learned in synagogue school when we need to know it and have it for daily application. The hook is going to synagogue school, coming to learn it. That's what's so hard. 
the more we learn it, the more we can respond biblically to the struggles of life. Just like Jesus did. And it goes on. Satan gives a quotation. Jesus gives a quotation. Finally, Satan says, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms without the suffering. Jesus says, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart. And he's gone. Until an opportune time. And he'll come back over and over. And he'll come back in Gethsemane. When Jesus says to his disciples, you pray here. Pray that you enter not into temptation. Because I'm going into the depth of temptation right at this point. And we hear Jesus crying out. Think how complex this is. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. On Tuesday, when the voice came from heaven, he said, Shall I not drink this cup? This is my hour. The hour has come. He goes two and a half days into the garden. He said, No, take this away. Nevertheless, not my will. But thine be done. And the author of Hebrews said, says this, through fear, even though he were a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And it is clear he had in mind, the author of Hebrews, it is clear he had in mind the temptation account because he says he cried out to God with, with tears and great yearning unto him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. And what he heard was this. No. Because he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. All of this revolving about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In his baptism. And in his temptation. The other thing I'd like to addressed particularly in just a few minutes, is the multiplied miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ exercised, executed in his ministry. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 12 of Matthew, and we'll get some discussion on this. Verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Were these miracles demonstrating that he was in fact the God-man, the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And Jesus responds. There are numerous miracles throughout the Gospels. Numerous miracles. Do you have a favorite? Anybody have a favorite miracle? There are a couple of miracles I like that are back-to-back. They, they come on the same two pages of the text. There's a young girl. She's only 12 years old. And she's just about at death. 
And her father, Jairus, ascends the elders. He comes himself. And come and heal my daughter lest she die. A 12-year-old. Just entering into womanhood. And tender Jesus says, I'm coming. And as he's coming, uh, he's going through the crowds and a, a lady who was having great difficulty over a 12-year period touches him. And he stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples almost laugh. Everybody's touching you. They're all, no power has gone forth from me. Isn't that a strange story? Who touched me? And the woman responds. She could not function in womanhood for over, for a 12-year period. When, when the other little girl was born, she contracted this disease, whatever it might have been. Twelve years. Unclean all that time by Jewish law. A very private thing. And tender Jesus. Who touched me? And she speaks up. And she was healed. And then word came. The little girl's died. Don't bother And he keeps going and raises her from the dead. I see all sorts of love and compassion and tenderness in all of that, don't you? I tell the girls in Life of Christ when I teach, just put your hand on this page. This is for you guys. It is. The Lord knows. And he gives encouragement. And here works two mighty miracles. How does he do that? Dr. McLeod and I have a little difference of agreement on this. I feel sorry for him. Here's the question. How did he do the miracles? Some would say, as Dr. McLeod, all the miracles were done by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I will say most of them were. The one I cited seems to be... the power within the Lord Jesus Christ that's the Son of God just being transmitted to this dear lady. That's not the point I want to make. The the point is that most, my view, if not all, Dr. McLeod's view, were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens out of this discussion is that debate. Who does this? And they say Beelzebub. Now the Jews, the hierarchy was at a tough place because there were miracles. It could not be denied. How are we going to explain it? They explained it on a supernatural basis. Pretty good explanation, don't you think? They weren't denying that it happened. It happened. It couldn't be denied. (coughs) They saw it. And the people were being swayed to follow after Jesus. They had to come up with an answer. And the answer was, he does it by the devil. And Jesus gives his house divided. If I cast out demons, if Satan casts out demons, he'll defeat himself. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That was not Abe Lincoln to start with. That was Jesus. 
Now Lincoln went to a good source, don't you think? And here it is. Out of this comes a very difficult segment. Verse 21, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The normal explanation is this is an uncommittable sin now because uh, Jesus is not performing miracles now that we can ascribe to the demons, to the Beelzebub or to Satan. So let's not deal with the issue. It's a dispensational problem. No. This unpardonable sin, I think, can be committed this very day. I have taught classes at school where I think someone decided in his mind to reject the truth of God that he'd come to understand and finds himself then as one like Judas and the apostates in Second Peter in a setting in which it would have been better if they had never been born. Let me just summarize what the author of Hebrews says. And he again brings into view the working of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, verse 26 of chapter 10. If we, that's a preaching we, a homiletical we, it certainly wasn't the position of the author of Scripture. And if you'd like to know who that is, talk to Dr. McLeod and myself and we'll tell you who it is. Uh, If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has done three things? Listen to what they are. Trampled the Son of God underfoot. Counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. We know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In every one of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews, the author looks at his audience And he can't tell if they're really believers or if they just have made a profession. And there were some who were bailing out, going back to Judaism. The beauty of Judaism. The temple. The priests. The antiphonal choirs. The ceremony. The liturgy. For meeting in somebody's living room. With six other people. 
I'm going back. There's nothing to this. They had no doubt gone off to Galilee Bible camp and made a profession and lived sort of a Christian life, and they looked like it. But they had never genuinely taken the free gift of salvation. And now when they went off to university or to college and ran into opposition, they rejected all this foolishness and baby stuff. If we sin willfully, it's a purposeful statement. If we sin willfully, we trample underfoot the Son of God saying the cross is not worth anything. The blood of the covenant. What's this power in the blood? What a silly song. And the Holy Spirit. Ah, he doesn't even have a body. I don't buy into this. And the hand comes down. That's it. You're dead in the water. My spirit shall not always strive with man. It is impossible to renew that person to repentance. That can happen while we're sitting in a classroom. That can happen in a congregation like this. Where we say, enough of that. That's what I was taught early on. I never did buy into it. I told everybody I did, but I really didn't. And now I'm grown up, and hang it, I don't believe any of that. It's not a Mack truck killing us. It's not a heart attack. It's something that can go on in my mind. And notice, he's, he says, I insult the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, get off my back. My spirit shall not always strive with man. He will never again come under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And it is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that leads to salvation. Without that, none of us would ever come to faith, Old or New Testament. And if the Spirit's gone, there is no pardon for any sin. Isn't that a solemn message? I remember in seminary days, the same teacher... Dave and I had, just the year before, a guy had graduated from Dallas, and you had to agree with it to graduate. He agreed the next day, denied it all. Dr. Johnson said at that point, this book is here. This is written so that now is the day of salvation. If that's where you are, get saved. And if you don't, if you reject, it's a done deal. You're dead in the water. The problem is you're all putting names together. The author of Hebrews couldn't tell the difference, so he says, get saved. Now is the day of salvation. Or, to the Christian, get on the stick. Go on to maturity. Working of the Holy Spirit. We can't mess with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, baptism, temptation, salvation, all a product of the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus and in the lives of each one of us. Thank you for such great grace.
We pray for any that may be thinking of forgetting all of this, that they would take the exhortation out of the book of Hebrews and recognize that now is the day of salvation. We'd all be happy to celebrate someone's salvation, even if they already professed it. We'd rejoice in it. We pray your Holy Spirit will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. For your glory, for our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.